This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. In the 1960s, which was a convulsive period in American history, one major story seemed to play on and on with no end in sight. The war in Vietnam. When that war officially ended in 1975, journalists, artists, and public broadcasting began to conduct the autopsy. The result produced films like 1978's Coming Home, 1979's Apocalypse Now, and a PBS series first broadcast in 1983, Vietnam, A Television History. Over the course of 13 hours, the program dug deep into the background, cost, and toll taken on the principal figures involved in the war. 30 years after the first American died in Vietnam, the last Americans were leaving, waiting on the U.S. Embassy roof to be flown to safety. The long war was ending in the defeat of the South Vietnamese state that America had supported for two decades. What kind of peace finally was at hand? What would be the meaning of peace? My guest today is Judith Vecchioni, an Emmy and Peabody-winning producer of that series. Vecchioni has worked in documentary programming with Boston-based PBS station WGBH since the 70s and has been an executive producer there for 23 years. Her career has encompassed programs like Frontline and American Experience, documentary films like Blood Sugar Rising, and the Peabody-winning doc series Eyes on the Prize. I wanted to know what Vecchioni's upbringing was like and how her home environment influenced her career path. I grew up in a politically very aware household. My father read the newspaper from cover to cover, the New York Times from cover to cover every day, and we talked about what was going on. And so the big issues of the day, civil rights, the Vietnam War, were live topics in my family. My 
parents worked with civil rights organizations, making sure our community was not dismantling the housing discrimination in our suburban community. But what area was this in? South Shore of Long Island. Where? What town? I'm from the I'm from Massapequa. I'm from Merrick. <laughs> so you were in the South Shore of the island. Was your dad? Was he a writer? He should have been, right. but he did not end up doing that. He should have been. He should have been an academic. Actually, I think the politics of the day for people who were very progressive made that hard. And my mother was a teacher, was a high school math teacher, who I had for math, actually. And luckily, it's a it's a subject where you get the answers right or you get them wrong. And so there's no favoritism. Nobody ever got worried about whether mom was being nice to me. And half the class called her mom anyway. So when you leave, you go off to Yale. Yep. And as you head off to New Haven, was there a plan? Were you, was there a, a, something you wanted to study? And what was that? Well, the first thing is that I'm in the first class of women at Yale, the first oh. matriculating class. So I don't know that I knew what I was going to study at that time. I was interested in languages. I was interested in history. And I, I ended up being a linguistics major, which probably wasn't the most useful thing to study. But it, it's such a rich environment, you know, you, you, in these big universities, you, you get great education. I'm not sure I took full advantage of it. It was the middle of the Vietnam War. It, there was a lot going on. And Yale was very unprepared for us, for the women. How so? Well, they, 50 years later, this is like five years ago, they invited the first women back. So that's my class plus the two transfer classes. And they admitted that they just did it in a hurry to beat Princeton to co-education. And I felt a lot better once they said, you know, we really didn't think about anything except we'll we'll." paint some bathrooms for you or something. But there were no—you have to think about when you arrive in an environment like that, a university, you expect the upper-class people to guide you, to help you. You expect the teachers to know where to draw—they didn't know what to—nobody knew what to do. All the upper-class women were as new as we were. It was a real pioneering experience. This is 69. I we arrived in '69, yeah. and, the, and that and that class were you as incoming freshmen and people who were transferred, who were upper class people as well, right? Who transferred as well. So graduating classes of '73, mine '72 and '71, and but they came from you know Vassar and from NYU and wherever they didn't know Yale, they didn't know the professors. Nobody could say to you those key things of. Don't take this class, take that one. You know, the, this. if you got a choice of teaching assistants, go with this one. It was, as I say, a tremendously rich environment. There was more than enough for anybody. But I know that the later classes had it easier than we did. When you leave Yale with a linguistics degree, what's the plan then? Was You, you had never, no filmmaking. Had you done a minor in film? No. By that point, I did have a plan, though. Okay, which is my last semester, I got out in seven semesters instead of eight semesters, in part because I always had siblings in school. It was in college, so it was it was expensive for my family, even with scholarships and things. Mm -hmm. And my last semester, I discovered I had extra credits that nobody had mentioned to me, and I could take something fun instead of all my major classes. And I said, 
I think I'll take this class in video. What the heck? In the art and architecture building. And he got there and they had cameras the size of refrigerators. Right. Giant cameras. It was two-inch videotape that you were recording on, so you basically couldn't edit. And we took pictures of each other that, that first day, you know, videos of each other. And I had two enormous light bulb moments, light bulb over the head moments, where I said, I need to do this. This is what I should be doing. I had been doing radio, rock and roll, news radio, that sort of thing at WYBC, the GBH community station. I covered the Panther trials and then the riots around that. Where were those? In New Haven. New Haven had a Black Panther trial. Yeah. There was an event and they came and then there was a trial after that event. On May Day, there was an event. But what about it? Did you have the light bulb moment? Meaning when you're there, we used to have a joke. We did a TV show where the guy in the period was period television and he's drunk or he's hallucinating or something. And he turns to the producer and says, why are those people pointing those ovens at me? I'm meaning the cameras, you know, they were so gigantic. But what inside, when you're inside that environment, because you go on to go ahead and have this obviously amazing career, what was the light bulb moment? What, did, what was attractive? I think it was telling stories that were real and that mattered to people, that these were important things that were happening around us. And there were ways of telling those stories that had impact and that were creatively satisfying. I mean, I had done art before painting and so forth. And it just, it fed those same brain cells for me, that idea. And it had impact. It had reason. So reasons to do it that were not just entertainment or selling toothpaste, which is why, of course, I went for public television, not to commercial television. So that was the beachhead was public television itself. That's where you started. Absolutely. I started at GBH and and I stayed there for almost my entire career. I mean, I left once or twice, but came back because public media is where you do documentaries. I mean, now there's HBO, but HBO does, what, five, ten documentaries a year? They're wonderful, but that's not what they really do, whereas Frontline does 40 a year. And American Experience does another, you know, 10 or 15. I don't know what they do. Is POV still on? POV is still on, Independent Lens. Through GBH, I've worked with the POV people. I've worked with the Independent Lens people. So those are the independent filmmakers, which is where I am now mostly focused. But I've also worked with Frontline, Nova, American Experience, and all the background ones. And that brings in an enormous cadre of incredibly talented people that you get to learn from. I can't tell you the number of people who I've gone, oh, now I understand why we do these things this way. And I also have a, I'm old enough that my career spans from film to digital. So when we started, Vietnam was shot on film. My fire film was shot on film. And that's way later. So you're you're kind of in the midst of, of really smart, dedicated people. Now when you when you arrive at GBH, the CPB is formed in sixty seven and before you have a government centralized uh, funding mechanism for public broadcasting and in this case, obviously, uh, public TV, I'm wondering if they were like off on their own doing their own thing and raising the money. 
I don't think so. I think the system was formulated after the Carnegie Commission report that they said we need to have... Minnow. That's right. We need to have a federally supported system that could be independent and could be, therefore, able to cover topics that commercial stations needing to fill a bottom line and pay stockholders and so forth that they couldn't do. So when you show up at GBH, and maybe everything is concretizing at the same time and congealing at the same time, what was the terrain like? You're a woman. Yes, you have a degree from Yale, so that's a good thing. Did you get in there and roll up your sleeves and start working, or were you making coffee for a year, or what happened? At first, I was a part-time vacation replacement secretary. And I worked in the design department, which, as I remember, was, you know, pretty self-contained and had a photographer and a photography studio. And this is pre-digital. There's not even three-quarter inch tape. So, you know, it's mostly serving news and local. Very labor-intensive. Very labor-intensive. And I didn't have a lot to do except observe, learn, and watch the Watergate hearings. Right. I, I had, <laughs> right. It was a good summer to be employed there. And yeah. then I worked for the finance department. And then I saw some people, I continued to do these fill-in replacement stuff, and I saw these people in the cafeteria waving their fingers about. And I looked at them and I said, what are you doing? And they said, we're learning sign language because we're going to start the first captioning for the deaf and we need to know how to speak to our deaf employees. And I said, languages, linguistics, I'm interested in this. And they said, well, you know, we meet when we can. And I said, you know, I'm a secretary in the finance department or something. They'll let me take lunch at three if that's when you do it. They don't care when I take lunch. And I went in and I learned to sign, not fluently, but enough. And when they had trouble recruiting someone for a deaf person. They intended to have a certain number of people, one of whom was deaf doing this job. And it took them longer than anticipated to get the first deaf person to pay attention because it was it was untried captioning. Mm-hmm. So they hired me as the non-deaf replacement for the deaf people. And that was, again, an excellent learning process. It was writing because you were writing, the, you were taking the ABC Evening News and writing it into caption language and putting it in computers, early computers, again, the size of refrigerators, extremely slow. And when things went wrong and the machines broke down, we had a sign language interpreter who'd show up in the little corner in, of, of the screen and do it. And between when you start these beginnings at GBH and when you become part of your first project, that you're on the crew, you're helping to write, you're helping to produce, whatever your contribution, I'm, I'm assuming you didn't direct right out of the gate, right? So, you're, so you get, what's the first filmed project, or I guess it's, so it's all filmed back then, what's the first filmed project you work on, and what year was that? I went over to Nova from captioning, and I would say it'd be like 76 that so I went over two or three to years, Nova. You think three yeah. years. Yeah. And you were at Nova doing what? I was a production assistant, mostly doing post, so learning how you mix in film and how you taking care of bringing in narrators and contracting it and so forth. Yep, putting it together. Started producing promos 
a very good learning experience. Mm. If you got to tell people why they should watch this film on wolves in 30 seconds, what are you going to put up there? I had very good mentors there, some of whom came over from uh, the BBC because they had been doing the Horizon Science series, which was an inspiration for NOVA. NOVA oh. was the first big national project that GBH did. And it was clear at that point that the person who was running national productions was interested in expanding the national series, the documentary series. And so NOVA and then World, which was the predecessor to Frontline, and then American Experience all came in under that five or ten year period. So you're doing post, and it seems like, and I don't want to be too, you know, polite or whatever, but it seems like, did you feel that everywhere you went, people saw that you had it in terms of the capacity to do this work? Because the business relies on mentoring. The business relies on someone who's in a more powerful position than you are, turning to you and going, let's go. You're going to come with us, and we're going to go on the shoot together. What's the first film you make, you go and shoot? I was a PA at NOVA in post-production, and they would occasionally need somebody to go out in a field on a production for them. And there was a film that was done on very early genetic engineering, and I became the PA on that one. And I traveled with the two producers. This was, you know, Back in the day when crews were bigger, you had generally a producer, an associate producer, and a production assistant, plus your three-person camera sound team going out. Nowadays, it would be maybe two people with the equipment that we have and the ability to do things remotely. So that was one of the early ones, the genetic engineering film. Were most of the people involved in that project and the early projects you became a part of after that, was it mostly men? Mostly, yes. Mostly, but actually on that film, there were co-producers, and it was a man and a woman. Mm -hmm. And the woman actually eventually became Nova's executive producer, Mm -hmm. Paula Apsel. But GBH, I thought, was always pretty friendly to women. There weren't as many women at the very top levels for a while. Now there are. And in fact, GBH now has its first woman CEO as of last year. And I would say it's more women than men in production at GBH. Mm. I'm not sure that's true across the system for public broadcasting, and it's certainly, I don't think, I'm not part of the larger commercial world. It's not true. It's certainly true in the independent world that it doesn't matter whether you're not really being downgraded. Yes or no is the first film you make, correct? Yeah, that might have been. And that's for World, the, the mm-hmm. predecessor for Frontline. Frontline. And I did that one in Canada. And mm-hmm. I'm the producer. I'm not the director on that. The mm-hmm. director is Michael Rubo. What was the topic of Yes or No? What was it about? This was in the period when Quebec was looking to secede from right. Canada. Yes. And Michael Rubo knew this impersonator, an impressionist uh, named Jean-Guy Moreau, and Jean-Guy did impressions of René Lévesque, the premier of Quebec, who was the great driver for secession. And Jean-Guy Moreau was so well-known in French Canada. This is not an experience I had had before. You'd walk through the streets of Montreal or wherever, and 
little girls would faint in front of you. Oh my God, it's Jean Guy Moreau. He's so well known. He's so wonderful. And Jean Guy decided he would take his show to Toronto to see if it would play there. So it was about the difference between French and English Canada, uh-huh. told through this story of Jean Guy's journey. I've got to get a copy of that. That sounds amazing. Documentary producer Judith Vecchioni. If you enjoy conversations with brilliant documentary filmmakers, be sure to check out my episode with director and producer Rory Kennedy. I love Boeing and what Boeing stood for in this country. And we really celebrate that in the film because it's been an extraordinary company for decades. You know, it helped us get out of World War II. It helped get us to the moon with my Uncle Jack. And for many decades, Boeing did one thing, which was to say, we're going to prioritize excellence and safety. And the McDonnell Douglas people were put in charge. And they had a very different business model, which was very Wall Street focused. To hear more of my conversation with Rory Kennedy, go to heresthething.org. After the break, Judith Vecchioni shares the weight of responsibility she felt bringing the series Vietnam, a television history, to the American public. Hey guys, it's Ray from the Bobby Bone Show here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Let's go! Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the hills to the trails all over. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander, with three spacious rows of seating, up to eight passengers, yeah. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer, check out amazing national sales event deals on RAV4s, Highlanders, and more. Visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Documentary producer Judith Vecchioni can spend years behind the scenes making a series before it sees the light of day. Vietnam, a television history, was no exception. It was an incredible undertaking with its 13 episodes being produced over six years. 
I think it was two years of fundraising and four years of production. Oh, my God. Be- yeah. And it was in part, it took so long because we were making up a format for America. Nobody had ever done this kind of large, late series. Right. Where the stories fed to each other. You could watch them separately, but if you really wanted to understand it, you watched all of them in roughly the order that they were presented. So we were inventing that. And one of the reasons we had a British producer, Martin Smith, Martin Smith came because he had worked at World at War. And that was the only really big linked series that had been done before that. So he came over and was one of our producers and was tremendously helpful in talking about how do you divide up stories that are happening virtually simultaneously? How do you pick a way to do that? And things that we did for Vietnam, I brought with me when we went to Eyes on the Prize, not to jump too far ahead, and other people used for other linked series. An example is school. At the beginning of each of these projects, we sat down, all the production staff, and went to school together. We had lecturers, we watched films, we discussed the stories, we talked about what's a source and what's not a source. It was a combination of film school and journalism, and it meant that what we did was as unimpeachable as we could possibly make it. And for Vietnam, that was critical, since we were working within the decade of the fall of Saigon. Vietnam and television history, I saw that in its original production. Mm-hmm. How do you feel, and this is, goes throughout your career, I mean, eventually we get to eyes on the prize. I mean, you do two back-to-back, I mean, you climb with your compatriots, you climb big mountains that set the tone for public television for decades to come. I mean, we're going to get into Eyes of the Prize in a minute, but, but for me, when I watched Vietnam a television history, I go, this is it. This is what happened. For you, uh, did you sense, did you realize at the time, because you seem like such an incredibly bright and thoughtful person, that you're sitting there going, you know, I'm carving history in stone here. Did you feel that sense of responsibility when you were doing this show? We did, and we didn't know how people would react. I know that every single person that we called up to interview, to bring on board, whether they were American or Vietnamese or whatever they were, every single person said, which side were you on? That was their first question. They wanted to know, were we going to say it was American imperialism? Were we going to say America was saving democracy? Were we going Where were we going to be? And we... We said, and I think we worked very, very hard, it's not just fair, but balanced to say there are multiple sides to this story. There's the South Vietnamese, there's the North Vietnamese, there's the Viet Minh, Viet Cong, there's the Americans. Cambodian. Yes, there's multiple. And so what we want to be doing is over and over again, showcasing the complexity of the history with as much as possible. And it had to be very strong backup. I'll tell you a story that we, in in the, the story of Dien Bien Phu, we had a story of North Vietnamese heroism, the legends they told about how hard that victory was for them. We also had in that section a story of heroism from the South Vietnamese and how they 
marched into the battles singing the French national anthem because they didn't have their own anthem yet. It was too young a country. That kind of balancing, that constant balancing, and the research to find and verify these was enormous. I had a French-speaking production assistant to make sure that we were hitting the right records, not just the American records, but the French records for my French-based films. Now, I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, you, you might have worked on other things, yep. but Vietnam, a television history in its original release was in 83, and you're working on Eyes on the Prize after that. In your career at this point, are you commissioned, are you assigned, or do you pitch? How does Judith Vecchioni get on board, you know, one of the most seminal public television productions in history? Well, Vietnam, I pitched myself to be part of it. I, as I said to you, associate producer, I'll do that. And then as I'd worked on the first, I worked on episodes three and 12 as an associate producer, and it became clear that I should do the first two programs. And so they just said, you want to do them? And I said, yes, I will. For eyes, it was Henry Hampton's series. Henry Hampton was the visionary behind Eyes and the Prize, and he had been trying for years and years to get funding. He tried several times, got started, had to stop. And when he finally really got it together to do it, he came and looked around the Vietnam cadre to say, I need someone who has this experience of making linked films. And I know he talked to some of my colleagues and he said to me, do you want this? And I said, exactly what I had said about Vietnam. Yes, this is my story. I want to be part of it. So I left GBH to do Eyes on the Prize. It was an independent production. And I said to my my boss at the time, can I have a leave of absence? It'll be probably two years, three years, I don't know. And he said, we don't give long leaves of absence. I said, then I have to leave. And who produced And who produced that? Because I'm assuming that, like, I mean, in our podcast world, there's a number of places to go and, you know, look for funding. GBH itself, BEZ, where Ira is and so forth. But I'm assuming that at this point in the 80s, GBH is like the mothership for this kind of producing. Or were there other stations that were doing more of this kind of production as well? I think GBH was doing most of it. Other stations like WNET were doing some. They did the Adams Chronicles, what, what was that called? The, which was a fictionalization of John and Abigail Adams, but a long piece. But the documentaries were from GBH. But Henry Hampton, who was Blackside's founder and president, really wanted to do it independently. It was a Black-owned company. He, he wanted to staff it and run it. And he himself had been at Selma, so it was a very, very important story to him to tell. And he got the money from where, do you think? The NEH and CPB money, but directly. And we were running out of money all the way through it. And at a certain point, he got some company money from, I think, Lotus Incorporated came in and gave him. And that was how we made payroll that week. We were not going to make payroll. The independent world, I always say, you, you think you're the poorest of the poor when you work for public television, and then you go independent for public television, and you really know what poverty is. Documentary producer Judith Vecchioni. If you're enjoying this conversation, tell a friend and be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app 
Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Judith Vecchioni shares her advice for the next class of documentary filmmakers. Hey guys, it's Steve Cavino from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with the new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In the 1980s, there were multiple high-profile resignations from the board of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, or CPB, which funds PBS. It was a time of public disputes and allegations of politicization attributed to the Reagan administration's multiple appointees. I wanted to know if Vecchioni had any awareness of the tumult happening at the top of the CPB. I did not, and I think that's a testimony to the firewall between content and fundraising, that I wasn't doing the fundraising at that point. As a producer, as a senior producer, I wasn't doing any of that. Henry did it, Henry Hampton for Eyes, and for Vietnam, Richard Ellison had done it. I wasn't a part of it. It was there. It was certainly an issue, mm. but it wasn't something I saw. And GBH was very clear about, we have to keep a firewall going, or else we're a commercial station then. You know, we're just responding to different masters. I'm not saying it wasn't true. I'm just saying I wasn't at that level. So I worked very heavily in the 90s on campaign finance reform. Mm-hmm. Arizona, Maine, events where we raised money for the Legal Defense Fund— for those laws. And I worked with a group of people who we solemnly believed, I mean, without an ounce of hesitation, thought that uh, campaign finance reform was the linchpin of all the problems in this country. 
you know, spending a speech, money a speech, and campaigns. And we came up with all the cliches you hear now, which is, well, if money is speech, then the person with the most money speaks loudest. And I believe that every single person in the United States Congress, Democrat or Republican, they might as well wear decals on them and stickers on them like they're NASCAR race car drivers of, of who's promoting them and owning them. Mm. You can't run for office unless you get the money. Mm. Most of the people who win overwhelmingly, the overwhelming majority win who have the most money. Campaign finance reform was really just the biggest problem. So we go see Burt Newborn. He's from the Brennan Center, the think tank at NYU Law School. And Burt Newborn said that when Brown versus the Board of Education comes, he says they didn't wake up that morning and they had some new information. He said they knew the country was ready. They knew the country mm-hmm. was re- that the country needed this. We had to go in this direction in order for the country to remain healthy. Mm-hmm. And Eyes on the Prize comes, and it's a huge success, huge. <laughs> One of the most successful documentaries that I can recall. Mm-hmm. And did you feel the same thing, which was that it was timing, that people were just ready to start to really do the deep dive into the civil rights movement? That and also the commitment to strong journalism made the stories really forceful. I remember a screening that we had. We would have screenings of rough cuts with not just ourselves, the team, but with larger groups. And I remember, you know this, that when you're watching one of your films with a group, you don't watch the film. You watch the people watching it. And I remember the hairs rising on the back of my neck uh-huh. and saying, we got it. We have this. This was the the Emmett Till story in episode one. It's, are we speaking to the audience? Are we driving new understanding. I am a firm believer that journalists need to not enter into political discussions. I know some journalists who don't vote because they don't believe they can do that and still remain impartial. I'm not that far along, but I I am very, very careful about expressing my, let me admit, quite strong feelings because— I don't see how I can be effective in my job. Now, with the time we have left, of course, your career spans many years, and and now there are far more women working in in the documentary film world. And and, and I'm wondering, do you do any teaching? Are you do you teach? I do a lot of mentoring. I don't teach, but I do a lot of mentoring. For 12 years, I ran a project for PBS nationally called the Producers Workshop at WGBH, where for a week, we would bring in promising associate producers and local producers and run them through a very tough boot camp, like 10, 12-hour days, about how do you bring your projects up to the national level. And we looked very much for women, for people of color, for people from rural areas to bring in new voices for public media. A lot of those people have gone on and made wonderful, wonderful films. So that's been a very important part of my job. And I'm now working as senior editorial advisor for World Channel, which, if viewers don't know, is part of the PBS ecosystem, the way PBS Kids is a part of it. This is documentaries, short form and long form, 
digital and broadcast and bringing in new voices to the system. So we have a series called America Reframed, where the stories are, you haven't heard this, that tells you something about the town of Orangeburg, the town of Chicago, the farming communities of wherever. We also have a series called Local USA, which looks at really hyper-local stories being told by the people within them. So that New Voices is a, an important part of what I'm doing now. Now, two quick things. I watched The Diabetes, uh-huh. Blood Sugar Rising, and I have type 2. I went back and forth and had a, a pre-diabetes for a long time. When I see this, and obviously there's no comparison in terms of content with the Vietnam thing, but what was the reason? Was this an assignment? Why did you do the diabetes film? I'm fascinated by stories that are at the the edges of society. There are very, very important to the communities that face these issues, but not necessarily to everyone. And I realized that diabetes is a national emergency. If we hadn't just had COVID, we would be calling diabetes a pandemic. That there there was a moment when things were starting to shift. The first continuous glucose monitors were coming in. The first real fights over the cost of insulin mm. were, were gearing up, and that's just borne fruit, you know, a, a week before we're talking with the cap on insulin costs. So it just seemed to me to be an important story that wasn't being told and that we needed to get out there. I have it in my family, too. Right, and some people have talked about, you know, putting warnings on candy. Mm-hmm. You know that, 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 that you know whatever that might be, but like excessive consumption of this product can lead to certain health issues. I don't know what to you know what the answer to that is, but I do realize it's like when you live inside the minefield of diabetes, when you live inside the minefield of blood sugar issues, everywhere you go, you just can't believe it. I mean, I, I mean, I, I might have seen a beautiful woman. Years ago, when I was younger, I might have said to myself, "My God, look how beautiful that woman is." Now I hold up a drink in my hand in a deli and go, "My God, this has 88 grams of sugar in it." You know, the sugar content of food has taken over my life. Last question: Your advice to newcomers? Your advice to people who are coming in? Well, this is a little bit like yours and a little bit different. When I talk to young makers who come to me with a brilliant idea. I say, this is a brilliant idea. It probably shouldn't be your first film. It should be your second film. Make something first that you can learn and make mistakes on, and then Mm -hmm. make the one that really matters to you. Interesting. What a great idea. I also say to people, don't reinvent the wheel. If you can work for someone, I worked for people like David Fanning, who started Frontline, and I worked for Paula Absel, who ran Frontline. These are people who I learned from by watching, by making my mistakes in front of them instead of in front of an audience, and letting them say to me, I have an absolute memory of David saying to me at one point, if you moved that scene to from here to there, what would happen? And I said, Oh my God, it opens up so many possibilities. If I just, I keep the scene, but I just move it a little later in the, in the film. And he had that kind of knowledge that I could accumulate 
and not have to make my mistakes and put the film out wrong. And so don't reinvent the wheel. Learn from the people around you and, and go forward. My thanks to Judith Vecchioni. This episode was recorded at CDM Studios in New York City. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our social media manager is Danielle Gingrich. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing is brought to you by iHeart Radio. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.